Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and I have Victoria in the studio with me as well. And today we're talking all about voter legislation. There's lots of Senate bills, lots of House bills that are being proposed right now in our Senate, in our General Assembly, all regarding voter laws. And obviously, you know, we have the 2022 midterm elections not too far around the corner. So all of this proposed legislation, is going to have a really big effect on that election if these get approved. So today we are being joined by a special guest, a professor from NC State. And like always, we're going to let our special guest introduce himself. Yeah, I am uh, Stephen Green, professor of political science at North Carolina State University. Starting off, we kind of want to just talk about the background of redistricting in North Carolina because this has been such an issue in the past and still kind of is. So what is... What are the issues surrounding redistricting currently in North Carolina? Well, I mean, the big thing is that um, over the past, most of the past decade, we've had what is, has to be called one of the most successful Republican gerrymanders in the country in the sense that we have a state that's very obviously close to a 50-50 split in Democrats and Republicans, and we've seen um, our representation in Congress be as high as ten Republicans to three Democrats because of a very because of a very effective gerrymander, and then at the state level, um, our state legislature, uh, where you have a very small minority, I'm sorry, a very small majority of people uh, voting for Republicans for state house and state senate, um, because of the way the districts have been drawn, has resulted in a substantial majority of Republicans in both houses. So. You know, basically, we have um, a, uh, a congressional delegation and uh, state legislature that um, really distort the underlying um, voting patterns of uh, of our state. Mm-hmm. And, and let's kind of zoom back out a little bit and talk a little bit about gerrymandering and redistricting. I mean, what all what are those terms? Are they good? Are they bad? I mean, what how do they look like in terms of uh, redistrict? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Redistricting is of of course neither good nor bad. It is just a process uh, to try and make our elected bodies better represent the people that um, that are electing them. Uh, right, we get uh, a national census every ten years, and we use that data to redraw district lines and um, rebalance um, members of Congress throughout the country and and state legislative districts within a state. So, for example. Um, you know, if you have a county that's losing population, um, they will lose representation um, to, to better reflect the fact that maybe people are moving to places like Charlotte, Mecklenburg, Wake County, um, and they need to, to then de- have the representation to, to better reflect that. We've seen this year. So, for example, North Carolina will be gaining a congressional, represent, uh, congressional representative because our population has increased. Meanwhile, take – I'm pretty sure New York is a state that has lost 
representation. Um, they've lost a um, congressional representative because their population has declined. So, so really just kind of every 10 years trying to even that out and, and make things fair on, on both a national level and a state level is redistricting. And then gerrymandering is when people do this in ways for um, – I think fair to – these days certainly for, for partisan gain. So instead of trying to draw districts that are going to best reflect and represent the underlying beliefs of the people of the state, trying to draw districts that um, dramatically overrepresent the influence of one political party at the expense of the other. And you know, this to be fair, right? Gerrymandering has been around for as long as there has been politicians drawing districts, which is pretty much the history of our country. But honestly, what's changed is the technology behind it. That we have just this massive amount of data, um, you know, down to uh, the block level of people live, down to the home level. You know, as as we know in this this age of very little privacy, they kind of know everything about you and including, you know, maybe not exactly how you voted, but very predictively. And then we have, you know, sophisticated software and computer programming that allows them to uh, create these gerrymanders that um, I would say unfairly represent one political party in a way never seen before. Mm -hmm. and, and so even though we've always had gerrymandering, um, the technology, the data um, have changed it in a way that it is more effective, and in that sense, I would say more unfair. Mm -hmm. And and when it comes to gerrymandering, you're talking about how it's changed over the years, but let's talk about where the roots lie within within recent history. Let's let's start within you know like the 1900s. Gerrymandering, to me, from what I remember from my social studies lessons, were, was a big issue during the Jim Crow era, and there was there was efforts to make sure that certain populations didn't have access to voting. Um, do you still see that being as an issue today, or would you think gerrymandering is more just about power? Uh, it's complicated, mm -hmm. honestly. And again, you know, you, you go back to Jim Crow and you go back, honestly, before the Voting Rights Act, and, and, and race was not even an issue in that the votes of black people in North Carolina and most of the South were just so successfully, systematically um, repressed that – Right, it wasn't even a matter of, uh, of affecting black votes because they weren't voting at all. Right, it was about um, white voters, and so what we've seen then, um, especially in more recent years, is that we have had you know great success with things like the Voting Rights Act, and we have African American voters um, participating at at good high levels, similar to white voters. Is that um, when? Um, when these redistricting bodies are, are redrawing district lines for political gain, um, they they do it in ways that diminish the political power and the political influence of blacks. Um, the thing is, of course, though, that becomes very hard to to separate from the fact, you know, that that roughly 90% of black people uh, have been voting for Democrats in recent elections. So, you know, on one level. Um, you can say, well, look, black people are voting for Democrats. They want to – Republicans drawing these lines want to disadvantage Democrats. And so you know, gerrymandering in a way that hurts black people is a very simple, straightforward uh, proxy to do that. Um, but of course, you know, given our, our, our nation's history, uh, doing anything to, to systematically um, disadvantage um, the votes of blacks is, is a big problem, and that's why North Carolina's um, gerrymander was struck down. 
But if you say, well, look, we're just doing this gerrymander based purely on partisanship and not at all on race, mm -hmm. the end result is largely the same, right? If you are drawing district lines that systematically, especially in the American South, that systematically um, underrepresent Democrats, then you are just drawing district lines that systematically underrepresent black people. And you know you can do that without, shall we say, a racist bone in your body, but you know the impact is nonetheless that you are systematically um, underrepresenting uh, um, a group in our country that we have uh, systematically done so to to an extreme extent, um, re regardless of whether it's done for partisan purposes or you know because of racial attitudes. Um, the result is the same, and that's that's what a lot of people. Have argued, um, you know. The truth is, you actually you, you get to the Supreme Court where these are ultimately decided, and, and the Supreme Court has said, you know, hey, as long as you're doing it for partisan purposes and not race purposes, it's okay. But um, you know, a lot of people argue back that you know, the truth is, you can't, you cannot separate, uh, certainly in modern America, the workings of partisanship and race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. And, and I kind of want to move into some of the current legislation that we're looking at with this. Um, and I kind of want to specifically talk about um, House Bill 7882. And then I believe Senate Bill 326 kind of coincides with that, which is the shortening of absentee ballot deadlines um, to arrive at the county elections office. Now, a lot of in kind of in part what we were just talking about, a lot of the criticism with those bills is the fact that they say this is, you know, another example of direct suppression of poorer voters or voters of color. Do you see that same sentiment or what is your reaction to to that kind of critique? Uh, gosh, so many things. For one, it's just this this bill is an example of just fighting the last war in a way that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this this the 2020 election was so unusual because we were doing it, you know, in the throes of a pandemic. Um, and in you know, when we look at absentee ballots in a circumstance where the United States Postal Service had become, you know, extremely, maybe not extremely, but certainly by historical standards, um, concerningly unreliable mm -hmm. um, to the effect that you were worried about people getting their votes counted. Um, you know, so to right, so like Democrats who were very concerned about getting those votes counted, um, try to make some changes, some accommodations um, to make sure, right, in large part because of the Postal Service. And so, you know, like the end result, like how many people, how many votes were counted from ballots that came after Election Day? Mm -hmm. You know, some there were, you know, it, it was. Um, not a huge number. I, I don't know that it changed any election results, even in very close elections. So, you know, this is this is the sort of thing where, you know, I think Republicans are making too much out of it and saying, oh, look, Democrats are, you know, we're just trying to, you know, um, mess with all the rules, change all the rules to unfairly advantage themselves, and we're going to stop that this time of year uh, around. Um, and then, you know, Democrats are like, oh, look at Republicans making it harder to vote for, you know, people of color once again. And I don't want to say a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's a little too hard. But like in the end, right, like you were looking at millions and millions of votes cast and maybe tens of thousands that came in after Election Day. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that if you had told North Carolina voters strongly and consistently in October of last year, look, 
your ballot has to be received by election day and those were the rules going in, then you know there would just be a, a just a small trickle that weren't. You know, so I mean, people do adapt to the rules that they're living under, and you know, uh, there there's lots of states where look, hey, that has to be received by election day, and um, I don't think anybody's saying, oh, look at all the horrible disenfranchisement in those states. Um, you know, my, you know, all else being equal, I think just because of vagaries of the mail system and whatnot, it's it's nice to have a little bit of grace period, but it's it's certainly not some horrible anti-democratic thing to not have a grace period after election day. Um, it's, it's certainly not, you know, some massive act of voter suppression, mm. you know, that said, you know, if you look at the big picture and, um, Republicans throughout, um, much of the country are trying to, you know, um, enact policies large and small, uh, that where they can at the margins, just make it harder to get your vote counted. Um, which again, I think is, um, not great in, in the sense that in a democracy we want we want people participating as much as possible and we want to um, have policies that facilitate that. Mm-hmm. And and something that I've kind of through my personal experience as a reporter when I've been covering a, a few more of the Republican like for example in Greenville we had the North Carolina um, GOP convention like last Saturday or the Saturday before that and something that I'm noticing when I'm covering these events is that a lot of people when I ask them what are you looking for from you know the General Assembly they're saying that they're wanting voter ID laws I personally don't know what's pushing that sentiment and and uh, if you have any kind of idea well, of what's sure yeah I mean it's 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 elite Republican politicians and and media telling them that um, you know, that there is widespread fraud and cheating in elections, mostly done by Democrats, and that these are all the steps we need to protect that, to prevent that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's simply untrue. Um, it is a, a pretense, a pretext to make voting rules more difficult in ways that Republicans hope, and it's not even clear they necessarily will, uh, that, that will disadvantage Democrats. Um, and, and, you know, this is not at all to say that we shouldn't try and protect elections and have integrity and prevent cheating, um, which we should. But, uh, you know, I teach public policy class and everything, right, is cost benefit. You know, you, you just have to balance the costs with the benefits. And, you know, this is the sort of thing where people only look at one side of the equation. You know, so it's, it's a matter of like, what if I told you that, you know, this law would prevent an additional 10 people from falsely voting in North Carolina, but it would also present, prevent an additional, you know, 3,000 people uh, because the law was harder from voting. Like, is that a trade-off you would make? Um, hey, you know, these are all subjective, but I know that's a trade-off I wouldn't make. But if you only focus on the fact that, hey, this will prevent, you know, maybe these and, and fraudulent voters voting is extremely low. You know, this will prevent these, you know, 50 fraudulent voters. But because we've made it harder, you know, it's, it's going to prevent 5,000 legitimate voters. You have to talk about that fact. And to me, it's, it's intellectually dishonest to, to not, you know, talk about the fact that when you do make it harder to vote and do put additional barriers in place, that it's, it's not just that you are preventing fraud, which, again, all the, the, the fair studies show happens at very low levels, but you are making it harder for legitimate voters um, who want to have a chance to vote to vote. And, and that's a very significant downside that needs to be 
considered in these conversations and um, you know, typically is, is not from the people looking to, to pass these laws. I, I have a quick comment. I, I know Emily has a question, but I'm just I'm looking over these these bills because um, I have them kind of like the name of them right in front of me. I mean, we have Election Certainty Act. We have Election Day Integrity Act. Mm-hmm. We have remove foreign citizens from voting rolls. I mean, how much do you have any comment on on maybe kind of just the the naming of these Senate bills? And because if, if you're an average American and you're hearing what do you think about the Election Day Integrity Act? People are going to say, right. oh, I, I, I love, you know, I, yeah, I'm for, it. I'm right, for right. election day integrity. But when you really break down, you know, what this is and what it could mean and, and the complications behind it, it's it's quite interesting to, to say, oh, I'm I'm against the election day integrity act, but I'm not against election day integrity, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. No, I mean, again, like, you know, to be honest, this is uh Right. This is politics. Yeah. You know, it is it is naming your bill and in honestly, um, quite honestly, uh, often misleading ways mm-hmm. uh, for political benefit. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I'm sure that boy, I'm going to go back 20 years, but it was very famous. Right. Like the Patriot Act surely did um, plenty of good things to help stop or help make it harder for, for terrorism to occur in the United States. But also in many ways was could have been called the uh, the new law to dramatically limit your privacy and give government more access to all your information to try and stop terrorism act, which would not have been nearly as popular. Um, <laughs> you know, so right, like a more accurate name might be, you know, small tweaks around the election system that will have tiny effects on the amount of fraudulent voting and small effects on making it harder for uh we think democrats to vote than republicans <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and 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 that's the reality but you know if you sell it oh election day integrity and oh if people have all these questions about elections um you know it's 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 politics and a way to get support but um you know the reality is the the biggest threats to our recent election integrity was uh, the sitting president um, spreading lies and falsehoods about uh, the election, and um, you know that's not something that's that's going to be fixed with um, you know the rules about uh, the counting and when absentee ballots come in and whatnot, um, which which again to be clear by by all accounts, um, you know the the election workers, the people charged with this, um, did a phenomenal job and. Um, you know, there there were basically uh, no systematic at all um, examples of of um, election fraud in this this last election. There were false stories, but um, you know uh, there there weren't actual problems. And, and the election workers, and and in many cases, you know, political office holders whose job was to oversee these things, um, did an excellent job under difficult circumstances. And and we're you know, it's 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 more than even just trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. It's um, really, shall we say, creating new problems. Mm-hmm. Victoria, I really like how you brought that up because it kind of almost made me think, like, oh wow, like lawmakers are making clickbait as their <laughs> as their names yeah. for our <laughs> legislation. Um, but I kind of want to. We're jumping around here a little bit, so I apologize. But I want to kind of go back to the voter ID laws and kind of you know, try to be fair and balance out both sides of the argument. So in your, you know, professional opinion, are there any legitimate 
you know, help, is there any legitimacy to this bill that is actually helpful or positive? Um, you know, just trying to balance yeah. out those arguments. No, it's, 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 and I, and I, you know, I teach this one in class and to me, um, you know, some of these things are always going to be subjective, but it is mm-hmm. a straight up cost benefit equation. Mm-hmm. The benefit is undoubtedly that you prevent some very small number of fraudulent voters, of, of people who would uh, pretend to be somebody else and, and vote in person um, and you know, thereby have some infinitesimal chance of fraudulently affecting an election result. And right, we, this happens. Again, uh, it, it happens at very low levels, um, but uh, so you would eliminate that. Um, so okay, that's a real benefit. That's something maybe worth doing. But then you have to say, okay, but what about all the people who um, want to be legitimate voters who, for whatever valid reason in their lives, do not have um, you know, a valid government-issued ID? And, and again, states sometimes uh, can make, make that uh, kind of hard to get a v, um, that ID. And, and so then the cost is those people who are legitimate citizens who would be voting fairly, legally, appropriately – Without that ID, um, then are no longer voting, right? So that's the cost. And to me, the fact that you are preventing a handful of uh, of, of fraudulent cases um, in exchange for dozens and dozens of handfuls of people who otherwise would be able to vote legitimately, um, that's that's a trade-off that's not worth it. Um, but you know that's that to me is kind of like the, the both sides take. But you, you know, any time you make a regulation that makes something harder, less people are going to use it. Less people are going to take advantage. And and again, sometimes that's that's appropriate. But um, you know, in in this case, you 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 would be stopping legitimate voters. We also have to consider the cost to people who otherwise did not need an ID. Um, you know, for a lot of us, it seems like how could you go through life without an ID? But lots of people do. And in terms of the cost of obtaining. That ID, um, which is not just because even if it's free, it, it can be the resources. It can be like, gosh, I have to find my birth certificate from you know back in Texas from 70 years ago or whatever. And um, you know, in, in terms of preventing, by which again, all all studies suggest is in it's the tiny, tiny amount of impersonation voter fraud. I'm interested to kind of talk a little bit about. Um and this is something that I'm just seeing today, so I'm not sure if, if you've had a chance to hear about this already. Um, but the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has basically announced that they plan to invest uh, over $10 million in voter protection efforts, again, ahead of the 2022 midterm election. So do you have any thoughts on that? You know, is this a correct way to go about voter protection is, is funneling all of this money into these voter protection organizations. And basically they're saying, you know, they, they want to use this money to highlight Republican efforts to suppress voters. So do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, I do. I have thoughts on everything (laughs) to be fair. Right. Uh, much to my wife's dismay, but, um, right. You know, so like the reality is that, um, you know, on, on the one hand, right, like if you are making it harder for people to vote in terms of whether it be harder to get an absentee in, reduced hours for early voting, voter ID, et cetera, um, 
when people feel like you are trying to like take that away, like, hey, these Republicans are trying to, you know, take away my right to vote. And and if you can racialize that, right? Like, hey, you know, we've had it hard enough in here, you know, here as black Americans and we have this history and now Republicans are trying to make it even harder. Right. You take that, we'll call them marginal voter. And well, maybe I'll vote, maybe I won't. But it's like Oh, the Republicans want to take my right to vote away? Heck yeah, I'm going to vote this time around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just, just on a political level, um, trying to emphasize to Democratic constituencies, yeah, Republicans are trying to make it harder for you to vote, um, is probably a, um, a pretty good way to try and increase turnout uh, from those groups. And perhaps, right, the hope would be to even more than offset whatever impact there is from legislation that Republicans pass. So, so just trying to make people, you know, aware of that, and then part of it can also be, hey, um, here's information campaigns. Here are here are ways we're actually going to make it easier for people to get IDs that don't have them, right? Like we're going to create this clearinghouse where, you know, whatever, we will help you get your ID. Um, so, so you know, a couple pronged approach. One, like, look, you know, nobody is making it so that you can't vote, right? They're in, in ways maybe they're making it so that it's harder. Well. Then again, so for the Democrats, you set up, um, you know, organizations, whatever, to to help those people overcome the additional hurdles, um, and 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 then also, you know, politically, you you make this case. Hey, look, Republicans are trying to make it harder for you to vote. That's uh, I mean, that's a motivating thing. You've mentioned this throughout our conversation about this kind of like cost benefit equation that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like that's a that's just a very useful tool anyone can use when it comes to trying to understand what legislation is relevant to them and whether or not they should pay attention. Do you have any other kind of hacks like that? Or, or <laughs> if you want to break down that equation a little bit more, I mean, that, that'd be quite interesting because I know a lot of people are just busy, everyday people that can't pay attention right. to everything that's going on. You're right. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's to me – it's it's what am I trying to say? Like a couple things. For one, you know, everything has costs and benefits, and just recognize that one side, you know, for political purposes, it's it's not nefarious. It's the, but they're just trying to win a political argument. That one side is almost surely going to oversell the benefits without telling you the costs, <laughs> and the other side is going to be incentivized to oversell the costs without telling you the benefits. So just to recognize. That if, that if the only messages you are getting are one-sided political messages about the costs or the benefits of something, that it's almost surely distorting reality. So, so just to, to take a step back, it's like, oh, okay, well, this sounds great, but what might be the downside? And again, right, to be fair, lots of times when you say, oh, here's all the benefits, and they're like, oh, what are they telling me? What are the costs they're not telling me? And if you say, oh, well, actually, yeah, those costs aren't that so bad. It's really worth it, right? Or like, oh, this is this is really horrible. You know, this really is worse than the benefits. But um, you know, to to just recognize that you know things work that way. To recognize, you know, for me that it sounds very straightforward, but politicians do, political actors do what they're incentivized to do. You know, and um, whether that that incentive is to you know pass laws like this, to lie to their voters, to to exaggerate the truth. To you know, pass whatever kind of legislation, but right to, to recognize the larger structure in which political actors are working, and um, and again, how that that structure, um, all politics, pretty much all politicians want to stay in office, you know, and, and recognizing that how how wanting to stay in office, how wanting to have political power and success, you know, is, is going to 
um, incentivize politicians to to act in particular ways um, that what I, what I want to say not necessarily even just good, bad, or you know, in any absolute moral sense, but you know, we're um, we're all. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. I was about to say it's just all a game. It's not all a game, and I'm, you know, because this is real people's lives at stake. And 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 I and I complained to my students, oh, the media just treats everything as a game too much. And and there I was about to call it a game. <laughs> but but in a reality, I guess I guess the thing about the game is like we have rules, and and you know, there's rules, there's understandings about how the game is played. And even if there's not like explicit rules, you know, there's understood rules. Mm-hmm. Um, like right, like you know, everybody plays Monopoly with their their house rules and their house and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you know again just to me like recognizing that there are these rules that shape what people are doing and then there's these these understandings that that may not even be officially codified in the state laws or the constitution or anything but oh this is this is how the game is played um you know that that shape what we're seeing Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, perfect. yeah thank you so much and thank you those were our last questions thank you so much for agreeing to to speak with us today Okay, awesome. Okay. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, a, a conversation. I hope I didn't, I was going to say filibuster too much. Which <laughs> no, you were awesome. <laughs> so, but, you know, any anytime you want something like this again, I'm, I'm happy to help. Perfect. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Hope you have a great rest of your night. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. You can always find new episodes on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. We had a really great conversation with our special guest, Dr. Stephen Green, today from North Carolina State University, all about this legislation going on regarding voter laws, voter suppression, voter security. And like he said, it's really about weighing those costs and benefits. I think a really great point that our special guest, Dr. Stephen Green, made was it's really all about weighing those costs and benefits, weighing those options out and seeing what fits best for you, those costs and benefits, what weighs out better for you in your life experience and in your life in general. And like me and Victoria always say, you know, it's so important not to just hear one side of an argument, you know, don't only watch CNN news, don't only watch Fox News, those mass media corporations. Of course, you want to hear both sides. You want to be able to derive that opinion on your own from the information that you're hearing from not just one side, but both sides. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of What the Politics, and we'll see you next time. 